Reflections on Homer's Iliad by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 I'm going to lead off with a a little um, meditation of sorts, which is uh, going to be as brief as it's going to be, however brief that is, by virtue of the fact that I'm going to drop from it uh, many of the subtleties that ought to belong to it uh, and just try to say the thing as straightforwardly as as I can and uh, we'll get around to some of the subtleties as the as the weeks go on. War is a respected human institution. This comes as a shock to us because we always think of it as a great big mistake that we're trying to avoid all the time. But you'll notice that war is is always accompanied by political speeches, parades, holidays, and various other solemnities, great rhetoric, great national or tribal rituals. War has an abiding place in our cultural and civilizational order, a place that is a lot closer to the center than any of us would like to admit. A brief tour through a toy store today would put you in touch with how central that motif is in our cultural life. The G.I. Joe aisle and the large toy store, uh, the children's games that are being played by the children themselves uh, and by their surrogates on Saturday morning TV. And when mothers look out their kitchen windows and see their children playing war, uh, they think, well, that's the way children are. If they were to look out those same kitchen windows and see children playing that they were uh, shooting needles into their arms, they would immediately drop whatever they were doing and rush out and break up the break up the game. Uh, but not so with war. It has a it has a more um, honored place in the cultural order. So I'd like to begin by imagine, by suggesting that war is a is a respected human institution, and then make a point that it is one of the few surviving members of a whole family of human institutions consisting of child sacrifice, animal sacrifice, public executions, Dionysian cult rituals, Greek tragedies, and bullfights, to name just a few. Most of these have become morally unacceptable and or inoperative. There's an interesting question about these, and that is, whether they became inoperative and therefore morally unacceptable or whether they became first morally unacceptable and therefore inoperative. Uh, We might flatter ourselves into thinking it was one and find out really it was the other. Another interesting side issue is, are there any new ones emerging? It's hard to tell. In the past, new ones did emerge when the old ones collapsed. The technological advances that have made war more unsafe as a civilizational enterprise and therefore less morally acceptable, the same technological advances have made a million and a half abortions a year in our society safe and more morally acceptable. Whether or not there's a relationship between those two developments, future anthropologists will have to determine. Most of these members of this family of institutions that have gone by the board have done so because they are too personal. That is to say, our 
inherent revulsion at this bloodletting when it happens to a particular person cannot be repressed. And so we find the revulsion canceling those rituals. War tends to do it in the aggregate, collectively, and if possible, at a distance. Modern war has uh, the, the technology to do it more and more at a distance, physically at a distance and emotionally at a distance in that the way in which we deal with the whole question of the slaughter in terms of the language we use and the various instruments of psychic numbing that are called into play, uh, put it at an emotional distance. So war has continued to survive as an institution uh, because we have continued to find ways, technological and rhetorical and otherwise, to keep it at a distance and to keep the victims uh, faceless. The military, political, and economic provocations to war are really merely the triggering mechanism. They are not the cause of war. In meeting the requirements of a civilized existence, there are pent-up raw energies which the civilizing processes are able to check or displace, but unable to transform. That is to say, the civilizing processes are strong enough to keep us from acting out these impulses and therefore to hold them in check for a time at least. But these same civilizing processes have not yet been able to transform these energies. And so the best they can do is hold them in check until enough of the energy backs up behind that suppression so that they break loose out into the open again. War is the outlet for these energies. And the way it works, I think the way it has worked traditionally as a cult ritual is this. That the civilized world provides a field on which all of that pent-up aggression and fear and confusion can be lived out. The field is called the battlefield. The field is always outside of the polis or the civitas. The civitas is relatively immune from violence because we have this other place where it can happen. And as long as it's going to happen, we try to make it happen out there. The Iliad is a story of, really the archetypal story, of how the disaster happens. The disaster is that it breaks back into the city, that it cannot be kept outside the city walls. And so the great disaster is that the walls are breached and violence seeps back in, either because the walls are literally breached and violence seeps back in, or, as we talked about the first session on the Iliad, the aggression that is awakened by in the war is so much, is, is, is so potent that it actually breaks out between otherwise allies inside the wall. Today, in the late 20th century, the civitas is the planet which produces which produces a tremendous dilemma for us. Is there a field outside the civitas where we can continue to carry on this ritual operation? And of course, there are the stout-hearted who are in the process of trying to find this field by launching satellites into space, thinking we might be able to carry it on out there someplace. And perhaps we will someday. Perhaps we will, instead of shooting each other or bombing each other's cities, we will 
shoot down each other's satellites so that war will become what it has symbolically been threatening to become for about a decade, name, uh, namely a, um, a video game. So the technological types are looking for some space outside the planetary civitas where we can safely experience the catharsis of war and therefore get rid of all of that aggression and start fresh in the civitas again. Is there another alternative to that? The other alternative might be might begin with the recognition. Let's go back. The energies that feed war are those which the civilizing processes have been able to check or to displace, but not to transform. The transformation of those energies is the business of religion. So war, the existence of war, is a symptom of a failure of religion. That is to say, we have been unable to transform these energies in any fundamental way. All we've been able to do is hold them off until they are too potent to be held off any longer, and then we scramble to find some place where they can happen outside the civitas. So one hope is that we can find a place outside the civitas in the heavens. The other hope might be that the religious wherewithal could be found to begin the process of transforming the energy. I'd like to talk about, because I knew this issue would come up, and it came, comes up instantly when you mention the word religion. I'd like to think of it as, think, use the terms low religion and high religion. And begin by, because the Iliad is so preoccupied with death. It is so preoccupied with death, not because people are dying on the battlefield, but ironically because there is such an effort to avoid death as an existential encounter. The, ex, the attempt to avoid it as an existential encounter is part of the disaster of bringing it on as a physical fact. These are all great mysteries we're not going to get into today, but the tremendous effort on the part of, in, on the part of the warriors in the Iliad to avoid death as an existential fact. So imagine for a second religion being that which puts us in touch with our real condition. And one of the starkest and most alarming, troubling aspects about our real condition is death. The anthropologists say, or at least the last time I read them, which has been quite a while ago, that we that the first religious rituals begin around the grave site. That it is in the encounter with death that we become religious people because it puts us in touch with who we are. We are people who are aware of our life and who know we're going to die. And religion is is ought to be a journey into the mystery awakened by that painful reality. Low religion, what I'm going to call low religion, provides the mythological, liturgical, and cultic devices for camouflaging death or taming it because death is the great destroyer of our little plans and purposes. High religion is a journey into the mystery of life and death where we discover our humanity by discovering our mortality. That is to say, we, are, we become conscious because 
we know we're going to die. Death is the great stroke of genius on the part of the Creator. Without it, we would all live idle and useless lives. We would not bother to become conscious, much less compassionate or loving. A low religion camouflages death so that we could get on with our little plans and purposes, but it robs us of the meaning of the encounter with it. I've been reading Narnia to my children. and There's a great character in one of the Narnia books, Tisrock, who's the, who's the uh, king of uh, Tashban. And Tisrock is the great fool. And he is the, uh, he's worshipped, of course, by everybody because he's the all-powerful one. But they're always saying to Tisrock, O eternal one, O ever-living Tisrock, O Tisrock, may he live forever. And he is surrounded by this delusion that he is going to live forever. And he weighs about 300 pounds and can hardly stand up. Deathlessness is lifelessness. Now, the journey from Tisrock, oh, may he live forever, to St. Paul who said, death, where is thy sting, is the journey from low religion to high religion. War, Homeric war, and perhaps war in general, is a low religious cultic ritual. Certainly Homeric war is. That is to say, it is actually in the business of diffusing death. Homeric war consists of two major delusions. The first is that if I can be glorious enough in battle, my glory will live on and therefore I will not really die. Of course, in order to live, be glorious in battle, I have to kill other people. But that's a side issue. That's the first delusion, that my glory can be made to live on and therefore I will not really have died. And the second delusion, which we talk about a little more today, has to do with this thing called arestia. And arestia is an episode of great, heroic, valorous deeds that the hero will perform. His arestia is his moment in the sun. And everything is directed toward making that window of opportunity, to maximizing that window of opportunity, because that is the moment in which he must become glorious and therefore live forever, establish his glory, his renown. The arestia is when suddenly all of those archetypal energies can be constellated in such a way that he can fight on the battlefield like a man possessed. And the reason he can do that is because he is a man possessed. In the Iliad, the onset of the Aristea is almost in every instance brought about by the gods whispering some nonsense into his ear. That is to say, what we would call archetypal possession. The Aristea comes on him, and now he can perform his great deed. And the chief feature of the Aristea is that during the episode, he has become oblivious of his own mortality. He is living as though he were invincible. And once you believe you're invincible, you can become a mighty force on the battlefield because all those second thoughts have been eliminated. All of the fear of death is eliminated. And you get to go out there and behave on the battlefield like the gods themselves. And that's the key to the to this glory, which is to get the Aristea operating, in which for some 
period of time, I become oblivious of my mortality. The logic of it, and I say logic, it's not a, a logic, it's not going through the warrior's mind as logic. But the psychologic of the archetypal possession is strange indeed. The psychologic of it is mortality has been reduced to combat. And the psychologic is if he dies, I don't have to. If he dies, I don't have to. And if they continue to die, I'm exempt. For those glorious moments in which that seizure is operating, I am completely out of touch with my mortality. And another of the great ironies, the ironies, of course, bound here, but the other, another of the great ironies is that bringing this aristia into being is the chief goal of the heroic code. It is, you might say, aristia is the chief virtue of Homeric heroism. The irony is that the chief vice in the Homeric system is hubris, pride. And hubris is precisely forgetting one's mortality. Hubris and the Aristea are simply two sides of the same coin. Again, they're caught in this terrible dilemma. Only by winning glory can I outflank death. And only by falling into this archetypal seizure can I behave in such a way on the battlefield as to win glory. And by falling into that seizure, I lose touch with my mortality. The end result is always hubris. The various Aristeas that get played out in the Iliad follow that pattern precisely. The onset, usually the god whispering in the ear or shouting some war slogan, the, the, the upwelling of all of that archetypal energy to the, to the point where one's humanity is, a, is effaced, descending upon the, the opponents in battle and slaughtering them wholesale, and then feeling, oh, I'm unstoppable. And when they start to feel unstoppable, suddenly one of the gods says, uh-oh, we got another hubris situation on our hands, don't we? Somebody better go down there and throw a lightning bolt at that kid. It's all part of the same dynamic. What I think has gone unnoticed by most people who have studied from the psychological point of view these issues is this deeper thing that comes up when you begin to see its link with blood sacrifice. The catharsis comes when, I'm going to say, an innocent one, not necessarily an innocent one in the moral sense, but in some way an innocent one. That is to say, for instance, Oedipus is an innocent one in some way, not morally, semi-morally innocent. Lear is innocent in some sense. We're not quite sure how it is he's innocent. Hamlet is innocent in some sense. Orestes is in some way innocent. It, it, so it doesn't, it's not just a moral innocence, but I'm going to use the word innocent anyway. The catharsis happens when an innocent one dies right in front of our eyes. The catharsis that war is all about happens at that moment. As long as we make the enemy in war into a fiend, we no longer recognize any innocence in the enemy. That's jeopardizing the 
cult, the cult ritual. The other thing that jeopardizes it is that all the killing happens in mass somewhere else. Even if I'm in war sometimes, I'm launching missiles, you know, or I'm doing something, it's happening over there. If one innocent person would die in the presence, psychologically speaking, in the presence of all the onlookers, the catharsis would happen and the war would be over. For instance, taking some wild for instances here, would we have had more commitment to the war in Vietnam had not we as a nation via television and so on, had not we gotten caught up in the death and ritual funerals of John Kennedy and Martin Luther King, did the, did the existence of those two deaths and funerals in our psychic life do something to us as a people which caused the kind of catharsis that let some of that energy out and then when it came to Vietnam, which was right around the corner, brewing at the same time, really, did it not... Was that part of the our lack of commitment to that aggression? See, war really is the avoidance of conflict because conflict is something that happens in koinonia, to use a New Testament word, in the community. I am in... I am in and committed to be in relationship. And in that relationship, let's have it out. That's conflict within the koinonia. War is when you say this division is so profound that we can no longer have it and still remain in koinonia. Therefore, let's step outside. <laughs> See? And you lose that sense of genuine conflict. The creativity of the conflict is lost. If war in the, in the Homeric tradition is a low religion, the attempt is to avoid the existential confrontation with death. And one can do that only by falling into the seizure in which military prowess is the only thing in my consciousness. Now, Diomedes in, is... Has, is just coming off of his Aristia, his, his day in the sun. I mean, he has been death itself. That's the other thing about the irony, is that you forget your mortality and you become death itself. Remember when the bomb, the, the experimental bomb went off, Oppenheimer looked at it and said, I have become death. Mm -hmm. Well, Diomedes has become death. And he's really, as they say, on a roll. So much so that the gods have to say, we're going to have to cut him off at the knees. Look at him. It's another case of hubris. Okay, well, he then has an encounter on the battlefield with Glaucus. Now, he's been, he's already, he ends up wounding two of the gods in his Aristia, Diomedes does, Aphrodite and Ares. But in between the two episodes of him wounding them, he meets Glaucus on the field. Now, Glaucus is an impressive-looking Trojan, and he thinks, well, maybe this is one of the gods. So he says, you better tell me what your pedigree is so I'll know that you don't have any divine blood in you because Athena told me not to be warring with any gods. He asked Glaucus, the word he uses in the question to Glaucus is the Greek word genie, G-E-N-E-E, -E, which is, what is your genealogy, so to speak? What is your, give me your pedigree, your, your background, 
your bloodline. But the word also means uh, generation in, in, a, in a larger sense, like the generations. Tell me about your generation, not just your particular engendering, but tell me about generation itself. Well, obviously, Diomedes says, means, what? tell me about your parents and their parents. But the first thing that Glaucus picks up on is the other implication of the word genie, namely generation. He says, why ask my birth, Diomedes? Very like leaves upon this earth are the generations of men, old leaves cast on the ground by wind, young leaves the greening forest bears when spring comes in. So mortals pass, one generation flowers even as another dies away. Now that's, Glaucus tells two stories. That's the first story. The first story is, Diomedes, you and I are mortal and all humans are mortal. And there we stand in in our respective generational lines facing each other with these weapons in our hands. We're mortal. Boom! The whole question of mortality drops right there in front of them. The whole war and its, and its, and its cultic apparatus has been the attempt to avoid an, a real existential encounter with death. And there it is. Mortality. If they were to confront that, they would begin the journey from low religion to high religion, right there. And that's where it so often begins. In the book of Sirach, an image, a metaphor just like the one used by Glaucus, every living thing grows like a garment, the age-old law is death must be. Like foliage growing on a bushy tree, some leaves falling, others growing, so are the generations of flesh and blood. One dies, another is born. Every achievement rots away and perishes, and with it goes its author. That last phrase, that last phrase, every achievement rots away and perishes, and with it goes its author. That is the conclusion that neither Diomedes nor Glaucus can afford to make, because the whole heroic motif is based on winning glory that will last. You see? And they've come... The hypothesis, so to speak, is right there before them. And the conclusion to be drawn from it, they dare not draw because they have no other cultic operation to turn to. They have no other paradigm to live within. And so Glaucus tells him another story, which is, well, who my grandparents were and my parents and da-da-da. And they found, find out that they have a common grandfather connection. Their grandfathers were friends, guest friendship important part of the code. And so they say, hey, we are connected after all, aren't we? And they make this pathetic agreement, which is, since we have this connection, let's, let's avoid each other on the battlefield. In other words, there are two stories about their deep connection. One is the story that they are humans, mortals, and that everything that dies, dies, including your glory and your achievements, but they dare not confront that. Where would they go if they confronted that? The other story has to do with this other little particular friendship. So they go to that to discover their, their connection with each other. And even in that one, they draw the connection in the narrowest possible term. They say, let's avoid each other on battlefields. Because just as in the Civitas, 
all everything is set up to try to keep the violence outside the wall. On the battlefield, everything is done to keep compassion off the battlefield. All they can do is agree to avoid each other on ba- on the battlefield. And their, their sacramental affirmation of this is they exchange armor. Now, this is a beautiful symbol, which I think symbolizes that they have no alternative. Neither one of them can step out of that armor into something else. Because they have no... The, the psychic cultural paradigmatic resources are not available. All they have is the culture they have. They have no other cultural mechanism for defining themselves and establishing their significance. By the way, there's a little story before this that I, I want to throw in very quickly, which is actually the first instance of this emer- the emerging compassion that has to be beaten down, not allowed onto the ba- battlefield. And that is when Menelaus encounters... Uh, Adrestos, whose chariot is broken down, and Menelaus is about to run him through with his spear, and Adrestos pleads for his life and offers him a bribe. He says, just anything, don't kill me. And Menelaus says, okay, I won't kill you. And just then, and this is inexplicable, you see, there's no, it's, it's not part of the code, you slaughter your enemy. As he agrees not to kill him, Agamemnon drives up in his chariot and becomes the voice of the code. The voice of the code. And Agamemnon says, What now, soft heart? No fugitive, not even the man-child carried in a woman's belly. Let them all without distinction perish, every last man of Ilion, without a tear, without a trace. Implacably, thus he recalled his brother's mind to duty. And Menelaus, pushed away Adrestos. Then Agamemnon speared him in the flank and he fell backward. Grim scene. The thinnest kind of merest compassion and is immediately ruled out of order on the battlefield by Agamemnon. I want to go back, though, to this thing of Glaucus presents this the issue of our commonality grounded in our in our mutual mortality and offers Diomedes the opportunity to acknowledge that we are really all brothers and sisters of one another in that fundamental way that our common mortality can remind us of. They can't afford to address it at that level. But therein is the beginning. I quoted that passage from Sirach. I want to quote one other passage from the Psalms and then a modern poet just to hint at the fact that in that confrontation with our mortality, We can begin the journey not only from low religion to high religion, but to begin the journey into the meaning and the mystery of life and death. The passage of Sirach makes the final conclusion which Glaucus and Diomedes could not make, namely that therefore nothing we do will last. They can't afford to make that. In Psalm 103, the psalmist says, man lasts no longer than grass, no longer than a wild flower he lives. One gust of wind, he is gone, never to be seen again. Yet Yahweh's love for those who fear him lasts from all eternity and forever. That is, a, that is one of the most profound non-sequiturs in all of literature. 
the, the journey that the psalmist has had to make from recognition number one to recognition number two is the journey of a lifetime. Recognition number one is we last no longer than the grass, a puff of wind, and we are gone, never to be seen again. And recognition number two is that Yahweh's love for us will never die. And the journey from one to the other is what that high religion is all about. And unless you begin with one, you can't go to the other one. Here, Diomedes and Glaucus are presented with it, but they can't look at it. That's from a religious perspective. From a, from a more or less a religious perspective, that's not quite true because Wallace Stevens is a religious poet even when he's trying not to be. Wallace Stevens, a modern American poet, wrote some, some, some of his most fascinating lines, which have haunted me for years, are these. Except for us, Vesuvius might consume in solid fire the utmost earth and know no pain, ignoring the cocks that crow us up to die. This is the part of the sublime from which we shrink. And yet, except for us, the total past felt nothing when destroyed. There's a haunting recognition in there of the meaning of human consciousness in terms of its mortality. We are the cosmos that has the wherewithal to recognize that it, that it is not a life or death cosmos, but a dying and rising cosmos. But only by coming into that full encounter with our mortality. The convention is that the males do the fighting. That does not mean that the aggression that gave rise to the fighting was strictly male. Uh, as, a, as its source. It's simply the cultural convention is that they're the ones that actually perform the ritual. So the issue still has to do with whether or not that the source of that energy can be discovered in a transformation process other than that crude ritual can be found. Uh, and, and then the male-female thing becomes a, not an insignificant but less, less related to the cause of the thing. What happens in this part of the text is that we do get a a picture of the woman's role in Homeric culture with respect to this whole thing. And I think even though all this time elapsed between that cultural manifestation and ours, there is something we can see in this last part of Book 6, which is very instructive. Hector goes back into uh, Troy. He's going to ask the older women to pray to Athena to keep Diomedes out of the city. They pray to her, and their prayers do no good. They offer blood sacrifices to no avail. Diomedes will be kept out of the city temporarily, but the larger question is left unresolved. Hector then goes to the house of Paris inside the city walls, where Paris and Helen are lounging about. There is a scene of cultural exhaustion. Paris is fiddling around with his shield and his armor and his sword, idly toying with them. And Helen is overseeing the, the weaving being done by her maidens so that she, has, she is not working the loom herself, nor is Paris on the battlefield. He is playing around with the accoutrements 
of conflict. Hector berates Paris for avoiding the war which he brought on himself. And Paris very glibly says, well, okay, then I'll go fight. And Paris is a real case. And uh, then Helen speaks. Uh, Helen is a very interesting figure here. She says to Hector, whom she uh, has great affection for, dear brother, dear to a whore, a nightmare of a woman, I wish I had had a man for a lover who knew the sharp tongues and just rage of men. This one, his heart's unsound and always will be. He will win what he deserves. Come here and rest upon this couch with me, dear brother. You are the one afflicted most by harlotry in me and by his madness. Our portion, all of misery, given by Zeus, that we may live in song for men to come. The great pathos of her life comes out of that line for me that she knows that she, neither she nor Paris can resolve in any kind of way what the, the great crisis that they've brought on. And all they can hope to do is, is live on as an example to future generations, to try to, that, that future generations may try to understand what happened there. And we'll come back to this theme at the, at the very end. Then Hector leaves. So we right next to Hector Andromache, we have Paris and Helen, as, a, as so typical of Homer. We have these interesting comparisons. Paris and Helen, empty, idle, passionless, and now Hector and Andromache. The first thing we learn, and it's alarming in the context, is that Andromache is not at her loom. The cultural crisis is so grave, that is to say, things on the battlefield are so grave, she has left the loom and gone to the wall in anxiety and when Hector goes to find her he notices that the loom is unattended he goes to find her and he meets her on the at the tower and a very affectionate scene follows his warm-hearted lady came to meet him running beautiful scene of affection I won't quote, quote all the lines but after there she's holding his hand and she says to him, Oh, my wild one, your bravery will be your own undoing. No pity for our child, poor little one, or me and my sad lot, soon to be deprived of you, soon, soon, Achaeans, as one man will set upon you and cut you down. Better for me without you to take cold earth for mantle. No more comfort, no more warmth, after you meet your doom, but heartbreak only. Father is dead, and mother my father great Achilles killed when he besieged and plundered Thebe, our high town, citadel of Cachelians. Andromache has been through it before. But Hector has no alternative. He knows no cultural myth other than the one he's living out. And under those circumstances, all of us would choose the one that exists. That's just who we are. He says, the poem says, Great Hector in his shining helmet Remember now, shining helmet is the image for Hector. It's his symbol of who he is. Answered, Lady, these many things beset my mind no less than yours. He says, I, I, I know this is going to happen. But I should die of shame before our Trojan men and noble women if like a coward I avoided battle nor am I moved to. Long ago I learned how to be brave, how to go forward always and to contend for honor, fathers and mine. Honor, for in my heart and soul I know a day will come when ancient Ilion falls, when Priam, 
and the folk of Priam perish. What he says is, I know it's a losing cause, but if I do not fight the cause, shame will, contend, will condemn me. And if I do fight a valiant cause, even though it's a losing cause, I will win honor. And I have been raised to win honor. My culture has taught me how to win honor and that that is all that, there, that one can hope to win is honor. No alternative. He knows of nothing. And literally, there is no alternative for him. At that moment, he has no alternative. In, in that context, he, his town is going to be defeated. His wife is going to be enslaved. And there's not, and he is going to be killed, whether he stands there on the tower or goes into the battlefield. He is a trapped man. He then says what breaks his heart about it all is that he imagines Andromache the concubine slave of some other master. And he imagines her before another woman's loom in Argos. Again, the reference to the loom. And as a slave. And then he says, Seeing you in tears, a man may say, There is the wife of Hector who fought best of the Trojan horsemen when they fought at Troy. So he may say, And you will ache again for one who could keep you out of bondage. Let me be hidden dark down in my grave before I hear you cry or know you captive. Is it catch-22 here? He says, the only thing I can possibly give you is the minimum prestige that comes from being the widow of a great warrior. Even in your enslaved condition, that will provide you with just that minimum social currency to make your life marginally more tolerable. The catch-22 is that same heroism for which he became renowned caused the Greeks on breaking into Troy to slaughter his son, Astyanax, out of fear that he might inherit his father's valor and try to avenge his death. So the very the minimum he tries to give Andromache with his valor is the condemnation of his son. And then he picks up his child, and his child screams because of this helmet. And the helmet, that's what that's Hector's little epithet, you know, his Hector of the Shining Helm. That's who he is. Every time his name is mentioned, so often, Hector of the Shining Helm. That's his public persona. And his his young son screams because of this. He's terrified by this helmet. And Hector takes off his public self. This is a tremendous breakthrough, you know, and puts it on the ground and uh, plays with his child. It's a beautifully touching scene. And one thinks, how long will it last? Can it last? To be able to take off that persona and put it aside and his child laughs. And then the pathos, the, 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 the central pathos is he picks his child up and holds him overhead and prays a prayer. O Zeus and all immortals, may this child my son become like me, a prince among the Trojans. Let him be strong and brave, 
and rule in power at Ilium. Then someday men will say, This fellow is far better than his father, seeing him home from war, and in his arms the blood-stained gear of some tall warrior slain, making his mother proud. End of prayer. It's the only prayer he knows. It, within his cultural context, it's the only prayer he knows. Here he is, his own life, proof that the cultural pattern has failed, holding his son up, dedicating him to the same pattern out of lack of an alternative. Remember he said before, Long ago I learned how to be brave, how to go forward always and to contend for honor, fathers and mine. See, someone prayed that prayer on him. And now he's praying it on his son. Edgar Bowers, an American poet, wrote a poem called The Prince, which is a dramatic mon monologue by a German father after World War II reflecting on the fact that his son was killed in a losing cause. And two of the lines in it strike me and strike me as being relevant here. He says, the German father says, our heritage has wasted what it shaped and he the ruins proof. And there's Hector holding up Astyanax and praying that prayer on him. Hector then leaves slowly, mournfully. There's a final goodbye which I'll come back to in a second. As he leaves, he runs into Paris, almost literally. Paris is running out of his abode, and here's how the poem has it. Paris, in the meantime, had not lingered. After he buckled his bright armor gear on, he ran through toy, Troy, sure-footed with long strides, and then a, extended a simile. Think how a stallion, fed on clover and barley, meddlesome, thundering in the stall, may snap his picket rope and canter down a field to bathe as he would daily in the river, glorying in freedom. Head held high with mane over his shoulders flying, his dazzling work of finely jointed knees takes him around the pasture haunts of horses. That was the way the son of Priam, Paris, ran from the height of Pergamos, his gear ablaze like the great sun, and laughed aloud. He sprinted on and quickly met his brother, who was slow to leave the place where he had discoursed with his lady. Alexandros was first to speak. Dear fellow, he said, have I delayed you, kept you waiting? Have I not come at the right time, as you asked? And Hector, in his shimmering helm, replied, My strange brother. Two departure things, huh? My strange brother, shaking his head at this glib airhead of a brother. If you don't mind, I will summarize books 7, 8, and 9, not quite 9, at the end of 9, 7, 8, very quickly. A duel happens and then becomes a gift exchange between Ias and Hector. There's the burial of the dead, time out for the burial of the dead. But in book seven, book seven begins with Hector's brother, who is the soothsayer, Helenos, saying to Hector, your hour, you know, 
has not yet come to die. I have it from the gods who live forever. At this great Hector's heart beat high. That is, this is the beginning of his Aristia. He's told, you're not going to die. For the next while, you are exempt from death. And so Hector descends on the battlefield, goes to the right to the center of the battlefield, and starts laying them waste, boy, because he knows he's not going to die. That's the key to the Aristia, you know, to realize, to, to, to be without the fear of death. And he starts winning the great battle so much so that he doesn't want the, the Greeks to get away. They camp by their ships so they won't get away. He wants to kill them now. He doesn't want to just get rid of them. In book nine, you get the hubris at the other end of this Aristia. And Hector, in his ecstasy of power, is made for battle, confident in Zeus, deferring to neither men nor gods. And a little bit further along in Book Nine, Hector, being crazed with ruinous pride. So he had no other alternative but to re-enter the fray, and the only way he can fully re-enter it it's to somehow get this aristia going, which leads finally to the hubris. It's the old pattern. I want to conclude, though, with something that he says, because we began by talking about the dilemma of war for our time. Something he says to Andromache as he leaves. After he prayed the prayer for his son and handed the son back to Andromache, the, the poem says, After this prayer, into his wife's arms he gave his baby whom on her fragrant breast she held and cherished, laughing through her tears. Tremendous, I think, important phrase, laughing through her tears. Andromache knows that what Hector is doing is both noble and empty. And when he turns to go, Hector turns to Andromache and says, return to your loom and spindle. Now, I think, and some others think, that for Homer, the loom is in part a metaphor for what he's doing. I think for Homer, the loom represents the cultural activity of, comprehend, of comprehending what's going on. I think Homer, I think there's evidence that Homer saw what he was doing as loom work, as picturing something so that it could be comprehended. And I sense when uh, uh, Hector says to, for me, when Hector says to Andromache, go back to the loom, it is a way of saying, do that culture work. And perhaps there we can, we can grow into some larger understanding, some other sense of what else might be done under these circumstances. At least that's how, how it feels to me. And I think it's important to, to recognize that in the Homeric context, the women do the loom work and the men do the fighting in the field. In our time, the loom work and the fighting in the field is is a little more spread around. So that it's not, the, the loom work is simply those who are fortunate enough to be, for the time at least, exempted from the actual bloodletting going on. And I consider many of us in this room to be the fortunate in that respect. For whatever curious 
cultural or historical or whatever reason, we are for the time being exempt from that. And the best we can do on behalf of others who are not is do the loom work. I think of the of the weaving being done by Helen and her attendants and the weaving being being done by Andromache as being fundamentally different. Helen and her attendants have not Helen is a, is a soulful person in a way, but she is spiritually too impotent to pull it off. When it says Andromache laughed through her tears, that identifies her as one who's capable of, of weaving those two emotions into a genuine understanding of what the situation is. And that's what I think what qualifies her as the, as the weaver. Helen is very confessional. And she's full of self-loathing and all the rest of it and, and sort of sees her own dilemma in a way. But no, no sense of that paradoxical love and sense of pathos and all of that that Andromache has. She's the weaver, I think. Both Shakespeare and Dante said, well, Shakespeare was talking about poetic consciousness and Dante's talking about consciousness itself said, it begins with a broken heart. Begins with a broken heart. What Shakespeare calls love's sighs. Dante talks about the, a weeping heart. New consciousness begins with a broken heart. Andromache is the one, is the place in this poem where it can begin. We don't hear, you know, it's we, we, get, we see her later with further examples of broken hearts.